good morning. Oh, that was weak. Good morning. Hey, there they are. See, we got, did you notice, does the stage look a little brighter today? Are you scared now that you can see me a little better? Uh, we've, we, uh, by God's grace, we were able to get some new lighting in here, and we're still working on it. And uh, we'd been down to, after a lightning strike a couple years ago, we never got it replaced, and finally we were able to do that this week. So if it looks a little brighter, looks different, that's why. If it turns a weird color, we're still figuring it out and learning it. But uh, a big thanks to, to Tim and Mark and James for all the work you guys put into installing that this week, kind of on the fly. So why don't you thank them? Yeah. Well, hey, uh, today, uh, before we get going, I, I wanted to, uh, to let you know about something that I think is pretty neat. Um, have you heard of Community Gospel Church in Bremen? Are you familiar with them? Some of you are. If you've been here a long time, in the area a long time, you might be. They have a very similar background to us. And they voted last Sunday to join uh, the Evangelical Free Church. And so uh, we're in the same tribe now. So that's pretty exciting. So what we did this morning, we sent them over a ton of donuts. And this is their pastor, uh, Jordan, on the left. And then their kids ministry director, some of their kids. And uh, so we just, they're chowing down on a bunch of donuts. So if you hear about that from anybody you might know over there, uh, we just wanted to say, hey, welcome, thanks. And that we're stoked to have another free church in the neighborhood. Isn't that great? So it's pretty exciting. So uh, they decided to do that last week in part because of uh, as I understand it, our shared backgrounds. We have some, some similar histories as churches. And uh, we joined the Free Church about seven or eight years ago, and uh, they're on that path now as well. Um, today, we're in the book of Galatians, and we're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And we're continuing this section. We're going to wrap up this section where Paul is telling his story as means of his argument for the gospel. And so we're going to read that in a moment, but let me just make this plug, because I've been meaning to the last few weeks, and I keep forgetting. Um, you know, you have a story as well. Those of you, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have a story to share. And I would encourage you, uh, let us know about that. We would love for you to record your story and share it with us. You don't have to get up front in front of everybody and share your faith story, maybe of how God's working in your life or of how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. But you've seen them. We do them on video, and it's actually just a, a little teleprompter. You can just read your story, and you can do it as many times as you like until you get it right. But we would love to hear your story, and people would be so encouraged by that. So would you consider that? Maybe the Lord's tugging on your heart right now. You're like, yeah, I've, you know, I need to share my story. So just let us know on the Connect card. Shoot me a text. Shoot me an email. Um, but today we are in Galatians. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Galatians. And uh, we're going to be in chapter... Two, if you're thumbing through your Bible trying to find Galatians, one way to remember where it's at, if you see, uh, it's toward the back, Romans or Corinthians, go further, and then it's, if you found like Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how, that's how my uh, junior high brain works and remembers it, so it might be helpful to you too. Hey, we're in verse uh, 11, though, of Galatians chapter 2. Let me read uh, the text for today. And then we'll pray, and then we'll unpack it together. When Cephas came to Antioch, uh, I opposed him to his face, Paul writes. Paul had just been in Jerusalem uh, with, with Cephas, with Peter. That's another name for Peter and James and John. Uh, he had been uh, talking with them about the gospel and says, now we're here later, and Peter has come to Antioch where Paul was. And he says that when he came, I opposed him to his face. Uh, those are fighting words, aren't they? 
he said, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, the issue that's happening here, just to help you understand in case you haven't been with us, is uh, the, the Christians in the area of Galatia had, be- had become believers in Jesus Christ, but they were Gentiles. They weren't of a Jewish background. And after they became believers, there was a group of uh, what we're calling Judaizers, or Paul here calls them members of the circumcision party, that came in and said, uh, you know, if you're really going to be pleasing to God, uh, you've become a Christian, but you also have to become Jewish. You also have to follow all of these rules, all of these laws. And if you don't follow all of those, then you're never going to be really pleasing to God. And Paul says, that is nonsense that Jesus Christ has accomplished it all and there's nothing to add to it. And so he says to Peter, if you live like a, you who are a Jew live like a Gentile, how can you force them who are not Jews to live like Jews? So then Paul goes on and there's kind of this transition statement and it might even be a summary of what he said to Peter. He said, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, in other words, to be made right with God, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. I'll explain that verse as we get going this morning. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Tell you what, let me pray and then uh, ask for the Holy Spirit's help and we're going to unpack these verses together. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him. Lord, we've been uh, singing about your grace and about your glory and uh, the hope we have, Jesus, in you because of you. Uh, would you, Holy Spirit, now teach our hearts and change us to be more like Jesus? Uh, teach us from your word. I pray for those who, uh, uh, all of us, we can fall into the trap of legalism. So for, in the ways that we have, help us to repent. And for those maybe who are severely caught in it, Lord, would you free them either from their pride or from their despair to know your grace and your goodness? I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would uh, choose to twist your word and accuse us. He accuses us day and night before you, but uh, all to no avail because the truth is we've been declared righteous by Jesus. And Father, we pray all this through him. Amen. Well, 
in this story, uh, it starts off with a conflict, uh, a battle in Antioch between two apostles. Like if, if there was, you know, a billing for this fight, you might, you might see big posters everywhere, you know, hey, Peter versus Paul. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's on. And what's, what's going on though? Why is Paul opposing him to his face? Well, first, I think it's maybe helpful to understand a little bit more the context. I, I told you earlier, you know, that, that the, the, the Jewish uh, people who claimed to be Christians were coming in and telling these new believers that to really be a Christian, they also had to become Jewish. They had to follow all of these rules. And uh, well, what rules are they talking about? Well, the Old Testament instituted what we might refer to as uh, clean laws. The Bible doesn't call them that, but that's just a way to understand them. I think it's a helpful title. Uh, by which a person would be made ceremonially clean uh, and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. So you would, you would follow these laws and these regulations to become ceremonially clean before God uh, as you went to worship him. Now, uh, following these laws themselves didn't actually make you clean. They didn't uh, make you right with God, uh, but it made you ceremonially clean. It was an act of faith looking forward uh, that made you uh, acceptable in God's presence. And, and the idea here was that you couldn't draw near to God if you ate certain unclean foods. So you had to eat kosher. If you touched dead things or if you had a disease... Or if you touched someone who did. If you want to know more about these, you can read about them in Leviticus uh, chapter 11, 15, and 20. And the purpose of them, uh, God instituted these laws because it was a teaching method, as I understand it. it. It was meant to teach his people, and it showed that sinful people could not enter the presence of a holy God without first being cleansed. And it was this constant reminder every time you'd go to worship that God is holy and we are not. That God is perfect and without sin and we are royally messed up. It was a constant reminder of our sinfulness. And that's why Paul, uh, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3, uh, he actually says that it was for by works of the law, chapter 3, verse 20, if you want the reference, that no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, these, these ceremonial cleansings following the clean laws, um, it wasn't a once-for-all thing. You had to do it over and over every time you came to worship. You always had to be clean. And if you weren't, you had to sit out for a while until you were clean and then come back and then you could worship. And so it was this ongoing, constant, unending reminder of God's holiness and of your sinfulness and my sinfulness. And so Paul says, see, it's through the law that comes knowledge of sin, not justification, but knowledge of sin. It's this constant reminder of our depravity. And so you were reminded every time you came to worship. Can you imagine if, if, if those were still in effect today? In some ways, it might actually be a good thing. Don't you think? To where if we were reminded when we came to worship that God is holy, show us, show us your glory, show us your power. And we are not. And it was constantly in front of them, constantly on their minds. And your only basis then for coming into his presence was God graciously allowing you to after becoming ceremonially clean. 
Well, Jesus explained that with his arrival, that the time of these clean laws had passed. He talks about it in Mark chapter 7. And uh, he says that those things are past. But for Peter, uh, as we're going to see here, Peter, God actually had to show him a vision. And all of this happens before the text today in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, back in Acts chapter 10, Peter had this dream. You know, you know about this? He had this dream, maybe you've heard about it, or you saw it on a flannel graph in uh, Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school as a kid. And he had this dream that this big sheet... I can remember acting this out in Sunday school as a kid, and we had this big bed sheet with stuffed animals that we lowered down. But here was his dream. He dreamt that there was this great sheet full of animals forbidden for eating in the Old Testament, part of the clean law, that if you ate them, you would be ceremonially unclean. And then, uh, so Peter saw all these come down, and he heard a voice. He heard God say to him, kill and eat. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. See, because God told Peter in his vision, he said, hey, Peter, uh, have some bacon. Peter's like, I can't have bacon. I can't do that. It's, it's unclean. Lord, I can't eat what you... And, and God's like, no, no, no. Don't call impure what I've declared clean. Do you notice that God says what I've declared, what I've made clean? He's the one who made them clean. And this happens a couple times till Peter gets it. And God, just like he made those things clean, he makes and declares us clean not because of our works, but because of Jesus' faithfulness. Well, right away after this, Peter meets a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, who was a God-fearing guy. And uh, Cornelius uh, then eventually ends up, because of, of Peter coming to him, putting his faith in Jesus Christ, and he's born again. He becomes a Christian. This guy who's not a Jewish person at all, he's, he's totally a Gentile, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And God was showing Peter in this vision, listen, uh, the days of, again, just like Jesus told you, the days of those clean laws are over, and now I've declared people clean because of the work of Jesus Christ for anyone who would believe upon him. And uh, so Peter then begins uh, eating and spending time with Gentiles. See, to eat with somebody that day, we, we kind of take it a little more casually today. You know, we might be, hey, let's grab lunch. Let's get lunch together. Let's do lunch. And in those days, though, if you ate with somebody, there was so much more significance to it. And Peter begins spending time with Gentiles, him, a Jewish, the Jewish, a Jewish leader in the early church, and, and eating with them. And um, he starts facing criticism. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 11, but then he explains his vision and his experience with Cornelius and all that had happened and they all agreed, you're right, the gospel has come to everyone, not just the Jews. Well, fast forward to Galatians. Peter's been through all this, and now he's there in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and others, and he's, he's, he's uh, worshiping with and eating with and spending time with Gentile believers. By the way, that'd be you and I. Anybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. And uh, then a group of men come from Jerusalem, and suddenly uh, Peter's ways start to change. You notice what he does? Did you see that in the text? He said, uh, when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. See, Peter didn't change his views, but suddenly he was intimidated by this group of people that showed up. And he started changing the way he acted. He became a hypocrite. And the thing that I want you to see here that kind of sets us up for the rest of the morning and the rest of this passage is that... Uh, there's a constant danger in legalism. That the threat of legalism 
In other words, doing certain things to be made right with God, following certain rules, legal meaning the law, uh, being saved, it, it, it's a constant danger that we all fall back into. You're like, I don't know, I don't know if I fall into it. Listen, if Peter would fall into it, you and I are susceptible as well. See, Peter subscribed to the doctrine, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, of justification by faith. He believed it. He taught it. He preached it uh, with, against opposition. And yet he gets to this point and um, he succumbs to legalism and to the legalists of that day because of fear. He, he, remember Paul said earlier in chapter 1 that, that he couldn't fear God and still be a servant of Christ. The proverb, writer of Proverbs says, the fear of man is a snare and a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And, and Peter's hypocrisy was so great that even Barnabas joined in. Well, when Peter withdrew from meeting with the Gentiles, can you imagine what that was like for them? First, they were excited. This leader of the church is here among us, validating our faith, and now, oh, so it's all, it all fake, huh, Peter? See who you really are. Can you imagine how discouraged they would have been? And, and how off-putting that would have been? And so Paul gets in his face to confront him of it. Peter let the fear of man infect his heart. I wonder, um, do you ever do this? I know I'm guilty of this. I can, I can, uh, I can be just like Peter in this way. Maybe, um, maybe you can relate. Sometimes maybe you just don't want to associate with certain people and or you don't want to, I don't, I don't say that with any sense of pride at all, but shame, that I can be like that. And I can ex- exclude people because of my pride of maybe what other people would think. Or, or I can do it in the sense of avoiding conflict. And I don't, you know, I don't want to get into conflict with them because they've got a lot of influence. And if they get mad at me, then, oh, I don't know. Even if what I know is right is right. Do you do that? See, in a sense, that's kind of what Peter did. He succumbed to those who were uh, of influence in the church, and he didn't want to stir the pot back home in Jerusalem. And so uh, in, in succumbing to their legalism, he actually damaged these new believers in Antioch. In many churches, we do this. Uh, uh, Christians do this. We're all guilty of it. And Peter, again, he hadn't changed his convictions. He just succumbed to fear, and he was, he was afraid. Well, here's the thing. We're all subject to this, to this type of legalism, and legalism dies very unwillingly, very unwillingly. And so sometimes, like Paul, we need to be willing to confront one another to avoid some of the dangers of legalism. We need to confront one another and say, hey, you're, you're not walking, as Paul wrote, in step with the truth of the gospel. You know, that phrase means literally not ortho-walking with the gospel, not walking straight with the gospel. And the gospel said uh, that you're justified by faith, but Peter was saying, no, you've got to do all these things too. And legalism nullifies the gospel. Paul warned us of that in chapter 1. Well, Peter's actions remind us how quickly we can revert back to religion. So I started thinking, I was like, well, so what are some ways maybe that we might do this? What are some ways we succumb to legalism and to religion? And I I came up with three, how we tend to fall into legalism today. First, uh, open-hand issues. Uh, We put too much emphasis on what I would call open-hand issues 
issues. If you're new, you've maybe, heard me, you've maybe never heard me talk about this. If you've been here any length of time, I'm sure you have, that we're to have a two-handed theology, right? In one hand is a closed fist, and in this closed fist, we hold everything uh, that if we let go of it, we cease to be a, a Christian, according to the Bible. So the deity of Jesus Christ goes in a closed fist. Uh, his penal substitutionary atonement goes in this closed fist. That the Trinity goes in this closed fist. The, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, of, uh, of our depravity, of needing to be saved, all those things go in this fist. And then in this open hand, though, go things that we might have convictions on. But that at the end of the day, if I let go of those, I'm still a Christian. And we can disagree in significant ways on what's in this open hand. But you try to take something out of this closed hand, those are fighting words. We're going to throw punches over that one, right? And a lot of times what happens when there's division or conflict in a church or in churches, uh, typically what happens is people will take what should go in the open hand and they'll, try to, they'll stick it in the closed fist. And they'll say, we're going to fight about this. And you're like, eh, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. So like, uh, you know, for a long time, maybe it's still, I think it still happens in some churches. You heard of like the worship wars, right? The, the style of music. Oh, we're going to, we're going to, no, that's wrong. No. Well, no, you see all kinds of instruments in the Bible worshiping God. It's just a preference. You can have conviction on it. That's great. And a preference, no problem. Don't put it in this fist and fight over it and divide over it, Right? There's all kinds of things, and there's many more that go in the open hand than go in the closed fist. And in doing this, churches, when they overemphasize open hand things, they become sectarian. In other words, they give excessive attachment to a, a particular uh, way of thinking or religion, and they separate themselves from others who might see things differently in an unhealthy way. You know, um, it's kind of the joke I grew up... Um, I grew up in a mainline denomination in a Lutheran church, and I learned a lot about God. But um, so I can tell this joke because I've I've got roots there, and I I love Lutherans, and my I saw a family in that church. But I'll just tell this joke so I don't offend anyone else. You know that at least got some background. But you've heard the joke about Peter walking some people through heaven, and he walks down to this wing, and he says, "Yeah, this is this is where uh, all all the Lutherans from Josh's old church live." But so be quiet. They think they're the only ones here. Now, you could fill in any denomination in that, and you would find at least a church, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, whoever, right? I'm not just picking on Lutherans. Uh, any church, you could, you could plug them in there uh, sometimes where they think that they've taken these open-hand things, put them in a closed fist, and said, you know what? Um, we're going to fight over these. And so they separate themselves from everyone else in the greater church. That's not healthy. Uh, That's legalism, friends. Here's the truth. Every local church and every denomination is is really, uh, Larry Osborne calls it, their their Sunday school classes in God's big church. Every Sunday school class is a little different. The teachers are a little quirky, depending on which class you go to. Uh, their, Their music might be different. Their emphasis might be different. Their strengths and weaknesses are going to be different. They're they're just a different, uh, they're just different, and that's okay. But in the end, if we hold to these things, uh, we're on the same team. Amen? That's why in our bulletin, we pray for other local churches week in and week out. I hope you pray for them. They're not opposing. They're not uh, competitors. They're, they're on our team. Here's another one. 
So sometimes legalism by emphasizing or overemphasizing an open-hand issue. Another one might be the ist attitudes, uh, such as class-ist. We bring these attitudes from the world into the church or nationalistic views or racist attitudes from the world into the church. See, we all know Christians maybe who belong to a different uh, group of people or class of people or personality types that, that we had previously disdained in our lives outside of the church. And so if we see them in church, we go, oh, really, they're here? Why are they here? Um, working class Christians might have a distaste for Christians who are wealthier or of a more socially refined background and vice versa. Uh, Christians from one, here's a big one, from one political persuasion uh, might be upset by the presence of those from the other end of the spectrum. By the way, this is kind of back to that open hand, closed hand thing. It's, it's why we as a church choose not to endorse political candidates. We don't and we won't because we have people from both sides of the political spectrum in our church. And we don't want to be uh, causing division over things that aren't the gospel. If we're going to fight, we're going to fight on these things. Amen? And so we may pray for our leaders. The Bible tells us to do that. But we're never going to endorse a political leader, including ones I support. That's, that's not our thing, as we talked about last week, right? Uh, it causes division. Uh, very talented Christians might feel unhappy that they consider mediocre, uh, people of mediocre talent treated as equal parts of the church or people from different cultural backgrounds who speak different languages. We might look down on somebody else who doesn't speak the same language or has a different socioeconomic background. All of these things, friends, are, it's, it's, it's kind of what Peter did. And all of this comes from not living in line with the gospel. Without the gospel, see, here's the deal. Without the gospel, our hearts have to manufacture self-esteem to make us feel good about who we are. And we do that by comparing ourselves to someone else. And so we look down on other groups of people to, make, to lift ourselves up. But the Bible teaches uh, not that you should have high self-esteem or low self-esteem, but no estimation of self. Christ esteem. He's the basis of our acceptance. And then finally, sacred cows. In the same way, we can lapse into Peter's sin by taking our own preferences too seriously. This is kind of the same as the open hand stuff, isn't it? Um, for example, it might be hard for somebody who's from a more emotionally emotive background in worship to worship with, at a church where it's more conservative and, and uh, traditional or classical music or less, more emotionally reserved and vice versa. And we, kinda, we can look down on one another for that. And there's all kinds of other examples too. But why can't we just see that we're different? And that's okay. And that's by God's design. Amen? It's okay to be different. There's nothing wrong with that. But now, now as a church, we've chosen a direction on some of these things, right? We've chosen a direction on, on what type of music uh, we're going to sing, on uh, the way we're going to talk, the way we're going to dress. Just, we, we've chosen a direction on that. But we're not saying that everybody else should do that. We're just saying this is... This is our direction, and it's in an open hand, and if we uh, could change some of these things so that more people would know the gospel, we're going to let go of it and change it. But for now, uh, we're just, we're moving forward. This is who we are, right? That makes sense? So having no sacred cows, we've actually made that a value of our church. 
We say it like this, that Jesus is sacred, his word is sacred, but our opinions and our traditions and our preferences are not. Therefore, we hold everything other than God and his word in an open hand with a loose grip, and we're willing to let it go for the sake of the gospel. We're committed to having no sacred cows. Amen? All right, that deserves a big amen. Amen? Amen. amen. Now, that was the issue there with, with Peter. He'd fallen into legalism, and that sets up this next piece that Paul talks about, which is huge in terms of Christian doctrine. Uh, let's start reading here, verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, look at verse 16. This is one of uh, the most important verses in the New Testament. Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justified means to be uh, declared or made right, to be right before God. Uh, we have justice as part of our government, right? And what's the point of it? To make things right, to right what is wrong, to make sure uh, things go the right direction legally. Well, um, that also applies to our relationship with God. He says, we know a person is not justified, made right with God by works of the law. I mean, you've heard it, haven't you? Somebody says, uh, you know, somebody important dies, and oh, they're in a better place. Well, how do you know that? Well, uh, they were a really good person. They lived a really good life, you know, and it was like this balancing thing between uh, all the other people and them, and they, they, they were on the good side. And somebody might, might ask you, I don't know, uh, if, if you were to die tonight, what would happen to you? Like, do you believe that there's heaven and hell, that there's reward and there's uh, wrath for sin? Do you believe that? And if so, then uh, what happens after you die? You're like, I don't know. I think I'll go to heaven. Why do you think that? I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I, I helped a lot of old ladies cross the street. Um, I mowed a lot of my neighbor's lawns. You know, I, I took care of their dog when they're on vacation. I, I've done a lot of really good things. Here's the problem. James tells us that if you've sinned in just one way, Broken the law in one way, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So any sin in your life condemns you and condemns me to hell, suffering God's wrath for sin because he is a holy and glorious and totally separate God. But there's good news, and that's the good news of the gospel, and it looks like this. It comes through a man named Jesus Christ. So let me show you this. I've shown you this before, but let me show you again. There's Jesus, and then uh, there's you. And uh, a few things uh, happen here that what Jesus does to accomplish, you know, you're not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, so what does Jesus do to justify you? Well, uh, Jesus Christ was God who put on flesh, is God who put on flesh. He came, uh, lived a perfect life without sin, and yet he paid the penalty for sin on the cross. He died for sin. And his death then uh, satisfied the father's wrath because he, he lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve to die, but he did. He paid the penalty for my sin and for your sin. And then what happens, the way you're justified by faith is the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart, according to God's word, and uh, nudges your heart to where you choose to believe that truth, that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. And when you do that, because of Jesus' work, 
of his atoning sacrifice, the Father looks at you just like he looks at Jesus and he declares you to be righteous. That's justification. He he declares it. He doesn't say, oh, you've put your faith in Jesus? Good, now jump through these hoops and then you'll be right with God. No, he says, oh, you put your faith in Jesus? You know what? His sacrifice was perfect, totally, fully accepted, and now everything that he's done has been imputed and credited to you. I'm declaring you righteous. It'd be like if uh, you gave Randy your mortgage and Randy wrote a check and paid off your mortgage. He's saying, no, just work with me for the sake of this illustration. And, and Randy pays off your mortgage and you get, uh, before it bounces, you get, uh, um, you get a statement from the bank that says, you're totally paid in full. You don't owe a thing on your house anymore. Did you do anything to earn that? No. Did you pay anything for that? Imagine you hadn't paid anything yet in your house. No. It was simply a gift, wasn't it? And his, it was credited to your account. Like debiting money from one account to another account. Jesus' righteousness gets debited to your account, credited to you. God declares you righteous, not because of any of your works, but because of Jesus' works. And so in that then, uh, Jesus redeems you and he sets you free. That's the freedom we're talking about. He, He frees you to live a life that's honoring to the Lord. See, Paul writes, he says in verse 16, we know a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, friends, you can't do enough to be made right with God. You can never do enough. You will always fall short. And not just like a little bit short, but like, uh, like trying to long jump across the Grand Canyon short. Right? Imagine you're the greatest long jumper in the world. You take off across the Grand Canyon. Chariots of fire are playing. Dun, 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 dun. And you'd leap, you know, in slow motion through the air. Uh, according to the width of the Grand Canyon, how far are you going to make it? About that far. Not even close. You'd be like Wiley Coyote, just crashing in a hurry. That's how far short of God's glory you and I fall on our own. We all fall short. And it's only, see, we can't be justified by works of the law. It's only by Jesus Christ. See, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, what Paul's, is Christ a servant of sin? What Paul's saying there in verse 17 is, uh, see, the Judaizers came in and said, yeah, you believed in Jesus, but you're still sinning because you haven't become Jewish too. And he says, so if we believed in Jesus, is he a servant of sin? Did he call us and uh, snooker us into believing in him and then forcing us to sin. And Paul says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's pretty incredible that Paul says the law is of no use to him anymore, that he's dead to that. 
and he's alive to God. I died to the law, he says, so that I might live to God. And then he says, I am crucified with Christ. You ever thought of how horrible that image is? Do you know what it was like for someone to be crucified? It's, it, to this day, it's like the most brutal form of capital punishment ever invented. It's absolutely brutal and awful. And Paul says, yeah, that's, that's what's happened to me. I'm, I'm crucified. There's, there's blood everywhere. And here's the thing, friends. This, then, this truth is the antidote to legalism. Because legalism results, it's kind of this bipolar disease that results in two things. The first thing legalism results in is pride, spiritual pride. And this, verse 20, it's the remedy of spiritual pride. See, uh, proud people say, look at how good I've done. Proud people say, look, I'm following all the rules. I go to church every Sunday. I serve in all of these ministries. I've given this much. So you should put my name on the side of the building. No, I don't think we will. But, uh, you know, I've done all of these good things, right? That's spiritual pride. Finding pride in our good works and legalism. But if I'm dead, Paul says I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. He's dead. And guess what dead people don't get? Report cards. You don't. You, you don't. See, you, you don't get credit for any good works if you're dead, do you? You get no credit. So you can't be proud. If you've died with Christ... It it's, has nothing to do with you if you've been crucified with him. You, you get no credit. Dead people get no credit. They're like Rodney Dangerfield. No respect. But seriously, they get no credit for their good works, right? See, my, my hope then is not in my performance nor in my comparison to anyone else because I'm dead. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to get this truth. It will cure you of your spiritual pride. You are dead. You get no credit. In other words, it ain't about you. It's all about Jesus. Dead people don't get credit. There's no credit to me. But it's not just the remedy for spiritual pride. It's also the remedy for despair. Because you know what legalism often leads to as well? It leads to pride, and then I said it's kind of bipolar because it does both of these in a weird way at the same time. It also leads to despair because I realize I can never do enough. I'm proud about all these good things I've done, but I realize deep down in my heart, it's never enough. I always fall short. I'm never gonna make it. Just like my accomplishments then don't distinguish me, my failures can't destroy me. See, if I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. My failures have been nailed to the cross. It was my identity. It was my identity. But that identity has been nailed to the cross. All of that was true of me, all of my sin, all of my falling short, if I've trusted Jesus Christ, it's no longer true. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, let me ask you a question. If, um, if you've been crucified with Christ, if you're dead and Christ is now living in you, the Bible uses that language often in the New Testament of, of Jesus living in and through you. You're dead. Jesus is alive in you. 
Who are you? You're dead. Jesus is alive in you. Who are you? Or maybe, maybe uh, you know, you're all of you, you, many of you believe the Bible, and you're like, you're not going to go, well, I'm Jesus. And you're, you know, you're like, I'm not I'm afraid to say that, Josh. So let me ask it this way. Um, whose identity do you have? If you're dead, and Jesus is alive in you now, whose identity do you have? You have the identity of Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. It's his identity you have before the throne of heaven. You know what this means? This means when when Jesus was walking the earth and uh, there was a funeral procession and this woman, her, her son, was in a casket. He had died. And uh, the, the procession goes by, and Jesus goes up, and he, he touches the casket, which he shouldn't have done as a rabbi. He shouldn't have touched anything dead, right? That's against the law. And then uh, raises her son to life, and she rejoices. Uh, the compassion he had to reach out and touch that casket, um, who gets credit for that? You do. You do. Uh, when... Uh, when Jesus uh, goes about his ministry and um, he's, he's healing those who are sick, that power, who, who gets the credit for that before the throne of God? You do. You're dead. It's Christ who's alive in you. When um, he has compassion for people in a powerful way and he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he, he loves her when no one else loved her. Who gets credit for that heart? You do. All of his good works, all of his righteousness has been debited, has been credited to your account. Paul says, it is no longer I who live. I've been crucified with Christ, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's the cure for your despair, isn't it? Yeah, in your sin, uh, you are deceitfully and horribly wicked. But there's good news. Jesus Christ lived the life you couldn't. He died the death that you deserve, and he gave you his righteousness. He credited it all to you, and you are justified not by your works and condemned not by your works, but you are made and declared righteous because of Jesus Christ and your faith in him. Do you get that? That's the truth of the gospel, friends. And it's the cure for your pride, and it's the cure for your despair. Do you believe that? Let me pray. We're going to take our offering. We're going to sing. And I would encourage you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, um, to trust him by faith, to to turn. uh, That's what repent means, to turn to him. And you would just recognize before him, Jesus, I'm... I'm proud, I, I feel like I can accomplish this on my own, or I'm, but I'm also despairing. I realize I can, I can never do it on my own. And so, Jesus, I put my total trust and faith in you as my Savior. Be my Savior. And the Bible is very clear that if you would do that and uh, confess uh, from your heart and with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and express that desire that you will be saved. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him.
Thank you that uh, our salvation, our justification has, has nothing to do with us. Because if it did, then as Paul wrote, Jesus would have died for no reason. But instead, Lord, we've been crucified with Christ. And I thank you that it's no longer I who live, but you, Jesus, who lives in me. That you delivered yourself up for me. That you loved me. Not because I'm good, but because you are so incredibly good. I pray for each of us as individuals and as a church, might we live out that truth and avoid the pitfalls of legalism. And instead, Jesus, live lives that are in step with the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.